beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, for almost 2,000 years, the Christian church has been very deliberate to categorize believers, new and old, in the Apostles' Creed, the 12 articles of the faith, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer. These are basic teaching tools the church has been using for some two millennia. And these are basic tools for the Christian to help us read the Scripture, understand the Scripture, navigate the Scripture, and live the Scriptures. And for many centuries, the Reformed churches all around the world have used the Heidelberg Catechism to spend at least two months every year expounding line by line what the scriptural meaning is of the Lord's Prayer. That's a very beautiful practice. Every year, again, we get two months of prayer training. From Lord's Day 45 to Lord's Day 52, we do an in-depth study of the Lord's Prayer. And the purpose of this exercise is to train the saints in the practice of prayer, which is the chief part of thankfulness. And as we come to this last Lord's Day on prayer, and as we have heard over the, the last weeks how the Lord Jesus teaches us to pray, we need to do the test now. We need to ask ourselves, what have I learned? What impact has this training had on my prayer life? If you think back a few weeks or months now, it's been a while that we started, but if you think a, a while back when we began the, 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 the section on prayer, and then you think to today, well, how has your praying changed? Has it changed? Has it become better? Has it become more profound, deeper, more intimate? Has there been development? That's what we're looking for as Christians. That's what we're always looking for. Am I giving more thought to my prayer? Am I praying with more care and deliberation? Am I praying with more fervor? Do I enjoy praying more than I used to? And so it's good to ask ourselves these questions today as we come to the last Lord's Day dealing with prayer. And we, we consider uh, this last section of the, the scriptural teaching on prayer under the following theme, Jesus teaches us to pray for God's help in the face of trial and temptation. So there's the, the sixth petition that the Lord Jesus teaches us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And the first question we have to address is what is temptation? What is this thing that we don't want God to lead us into? Well, you may remember, I've mentioned it at least once, if not twice over the last months, that the Greek word for temptation is kind of a double-edged word. It, it also means testing or trial. In the Greek language, the, the Koine Greek that's used in the Scriptures in the New Testament, the, the Greek concept is that testing on the one side and temptation on the other side are two sides of the same coin. In a trial or a temptation or a tribulation, God, on the one hand, is testing us to make us stronger in our faith, to draw us closer to Him, to build us up. And on the other side, Satan is using that same trial to be a temptation, 
to tempt us, to, to fall, to, to, to destroy us, to, to make us sin, to make us not trust God, to make us turn away from God. And so, for instance, if you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, which would be the, the Bible that Jesus and the apostles would have known and used a lot in his time, you go to Genesis chapter 22, and if you look there, Genesis 22, that's fairly easy, right, kids, to find because it's the first book of the Bible. Page 16, so Genesis 22, after these things, God tested Abraham. So in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that's the same word. It's connected to the same word as we have in the sixth petition. Here it's translated tested. In other contexts, this very same word would be translated tempted. So the way the translators do it is they look at the context and see who's doing it. If the devil's doing it, it's temptation. If God's doing this very, very same verb, then it's testing. So that's maybe a little bit difficult for us to get our heads around because we, we don't have that in English, but that's the, the way it is with this, this word. Testing and temptation are all wound up in the same word. So we first of all need to note negatively what this sixth petition does not mean. When we say, Lord, lead us not into temptation, we are not saying to God, oh God, please don't make me sin. We can't use the words of the Lord's Prayer as a motive to blame God when we fall into sin and temptation. We can't say, Lord, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going you know, to the candy store and... And I don't want to spend my, my, uh, the money that, that, that dad gave me, my, my allowance. But I'm just going to walk in there and just look at the candies. I'm not going to buy any. But Lord, don't lead me into temptation. And then you just can't, you can't hold yourself back. You go and buy all the candies you can and you waste all your money. And you walk out of the store and say, Lord, why didn't you hear my prayer? I asked you not to lead me into temptation. That's not the way it works. When we fall into temptation, whether it's a little one or a big one, we can't say, Lord, you messed up. You didn't hear my prayer. You did lead me into temptation. That's not the way things work. You, you remember we read James chapter 1. That's on page uh, 1011 in most of our ESV Bibles. James chapter 1, look at verse 13. We just read it. Let no one say when he is tempted... I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God does not tempt. And here, the word is translated in the negative, in the sense of tempting people to go into sin and give in to sin. On the contrary, where does the temptation come from? Look at verse 14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So any temptation to evil, to sin, comes from our old nature, from our separation from God, from our wicked and unregenerate uh, character as fallen human beings, or from the old nature that's left over from that in Christians. But then look at verse 16. What do we expect from God? Well, not tempting to sin. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is unchangeably good. He 
does not tempt us to sin. We can't blame God when we choose sin. And secondly, this petition is not a request to, to, to God to, to make our lives free from trials and tribulation. We're not saying, Lord, lead us not into temptation. In other words, don't give me trials. Don't put me in situations where my faith is being tested and where I am tempted to turn my back on you and embrace sin. That's not what we're asking. Jesus is not teaching us to pray, Lord, don't test us. Don't refine us. Don't make, make us grow in faith and maturity and perseverance. Don't put us in situations which will put our faith under an incredible pressure and make us come out stronger. On the contrary, look again at James chapter 1. We, we just read it. Look at verse 2 of James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials and of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So there, in verses 2 and 3, the Greek word behind these trials and this testing, the Greek word is the same word as we have in the, the Lord's Prayer. It is the word that can be translated temptation or trial, temptation or test. And the Bible tells us that when we get tested, we ought to be happy. We ought to be really happy. We ought to rejoice because God is using tests to make our faith grow stronger and to make us closer to him. We can rejoice that God has taken us little lumps of just coal that are in the ground and he's putting us under incredible pressure and making us into brilliant diamonds fit for the presence of the king. That's what he uses trials and tests for. So, to sum up, Jesus is not teaching us to ask God not to induce us to sin. He's not teaching us to ask God to give us a life free from tests and trials. What is Jesus teaching us to pray then? Well, we can translate the sixth petition in this way. Do not bring us into testing and temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. And, and the the, the the preposition is very important here. Do not bring us into. In other words, please don't bring us into a trial which we can't get out of, which is beyond our strength. Please don't bring us into a trial which we will fail miserably and through which we will fall into the clutches of the enemy. God, don't lead us into, but bring us through the trials and rescue us from the attempts of Satan to make us fall, never to rise again. Now, the very first thing to strike us here in this petition is how, once again, the Lord Jesus is very realistic in his appraisal of the Christian life. The Lord Jesus in no way sees the Christian life as a, a, a cakewalk, as a life of uninterrupted blessing and peace and freedom from sin and its consequences on this earth. On the contrary, Jesus is teaching this prayer to the sons and daughters of the kingdom of heaven, living here on this earth, this side of glory. And the words of the Lord's prayer, including these words of the sixth petition, are taught us by the same one who said, if anyone would be my disciple, let him take his cross, deny himself, and follow me. So Jesus knows what Paul also taught in Acts 14, 
22, where he says that we must through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. The way of Christ is the way of the cross. It is the way of tribulation. It is the way of suffering. It is the way of sacrifice. It is the way of much testing. That's the way that Jesus leads us along. And it's a way that he has walked himself before us. Now, Jesus knows that the Christian life is a life of struggle. It is struggle against sin. It is struggle to remain faithful as we experience God testing us. And in those tests, Satan tempting us. Now, the one who is teaching us to pray knows what it is like to be tempted you remember, we, we looked at uh, Matthew chapter 4, the beginning of the Lord Jesus' ministry, a number of months ago. We looked at Matthew chapter 4, and what was the very first thing that the Lord Jesus had to do in his ministry as Messiah, as the Christ? Look at Matthew 4, verse 1. Then Jesus, right after his baptism, right after his ordination to his messianic office, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That's the same word as we have in the Lord's prayer. That's how his ministry started. That's what was happening all through his ministry. That's how his ministry ended through his entire ministry on this earth. The Lord Jesus was sorely tried and tested and attacked in every respect. He began his ministry with the grueling temptations in the wilderness as Satan tried to make Jesus forget about God and his neighbor and just think of himself, his own needs, his own glory, his own will. And he ended his ministry under the terrible burden of temptation and trial in the garden as he wrestled with the fact of the cruel cross looming before him on the path of obedience. And the fact that he, he didn't cave into temptation doesn't mean to say that it wasn't difficult. It was. Jesus dealt with and, and faced down these temptations as true man. As a real man. And he sweated blood as he struggled against temptation, as he was tested. Well, what does Hebrews chapter 4.15 say? If you look in your Bible at Hebrews, which is, if you're still open in James there, just go back one book. Hebrews 4 which would be on page 1002 in your ESV Bible. Hebrews 4, verse 15. What does the Scripture say? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now let's get that straight. It's not as though that Jesus has, like we do, we have an old nature, and when we see something sinful, we're sometimes very attracted, and we start to consider that, and that would like to fall into sin. That's not the kind of tempting that the Scripture talks about. Once again, this word means testing or tempting, and so there's nothing in the Lord Jesus at all to which this temptation was speaking. He was perfectly holy and without sin, but it still was a very powerful external challenge and attack and trial on him and for him. Jesus knows what it is like to live under Satan's attacks. 
And he knows what it is to be human, because he is. And he knows what it is to be exhausted from the, the battle. Do you ever get tired of fighting your sin? Do you ever just want to give up? Just give in and say, you know what, God, I, I don't think I can handle this anymore. It's just too much. It's just too hard. Maybe it's just a whole bunch of trials and temptations that come one after the other, and there are just too many of them. Or maybe this is one specific one which just keeps afflicting you and, and pounding and attacking over and over and over and not letting up. And sometimes we just want to turn our back on the trial that God has set in our path. We say, you know what, Lord? You're leading me in this path, and there's another test. There's another trial. There's another temptation. I can't do it anymore. I'm going to take the easy way out. And there's this massive temptation to, to take the way of sin and not the way of obedience. Just throw in the towel. Just go along with the, the flow for a while. Just stop struggling. We're, we're just so tired with fighting sin and the devil. And the Lord Jesus understands what it is like. And because he understands us, he teaches us to pray. Because that's what he did when he was dealing with trials and temptations. What did he do? Remember Matthew chapter 4 in the wilderness? The devil attacking and attacking and attacking and the Lord Jesus throwing back at him the Word of God, the Word of God. It is written, it is written, it is written. He goes to the Scripture. And then at the end of his ministry, we see him in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating blood as he struggles in prayer with the Lord. And he deals with this trial in deep and intimate prayer with the Father, as was his custom to turn aside to a lonely place and just pray and pray and pray. So it was with the Scripture, the Word of God, and it was with prayer. That's how the Lord Jesus dealt with trials and tests and temptations. He has been there, and he has done it. Look at, if you're still in Hebrews or maybe flipping back to Hebrews, look at chapter 5, verse 7 now. Hebrews 5, 7. So that's on page 1003. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. So not just in the garden, but throughout his ministry, the Lord Jesus had recourse to the Word of God and to prayer. And that's why the Lord Jesus is teaching us to pray, because he knows that it works. It worked for him, and it will work for us. He knows that prayer works. And so he teaches us, pray this, my child, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Literally, the original language is, language is saying this, don't in lead us into temptation. And as I mentioned before, the in bit is really important. The point is, don't, the point is not don't send trials. The point is not even... Don't let us experience any attack of the enemy through those trials. But this is the point of the prayer. God, 
don't let me fall down in it and stay in it and not come out of it. Steer us through, rescue us, deliver us out of these trials so we can go on more mature, stronger, more experienced in spiritual warfare. Now you may think, why does it have to be so hard to be holy? Why does life have to be filled with so many trials and temptations? Why can't we just get a break now and again? Well, an old Puritan writer put it this way. Satan doesn't bother to attack people who love sin. In fact, Satan loves it when there are unregenerate human beings. They don't love God. They're quite fine with their sin. And they really live a very decent life. Satan doesn't care. If people are outside of Christ, he's not going to waste time. He's got them already. And he likes it when they live as very decent people on the outside and even on the inside, very nice people. He's, he's fine with that. Satan wants to attack people that love the Lord Jesus. He attacks people that hate sin and love the Savior. And the example this old Puritan writer gave was of a pirate ship. Children, if, if pirates are sailing around the high seas and they see two ships, two potential victims, the one ship is full of rotten fruit and the other ship is full of gold and silver and precious stones. Which ship is the pirate going to attack? Well, you don't have to have gone to you know, pirate school to understand that you attack the one with all the riches. And that's also true spiritually. Satan concentrates all of his efforts to attack those whose lives are rich in the knowledge of God's grace. And that means the more that you grow in the knowledge of God, the closer that you grow to God, the fiercer you can expect Satan's attacks to be. He wants to rob us of our joy in the Holy Spirit. He wants to steal from us the enjoyment of the riches of God's grace. And he's too strong for us to fight. And that's why we Christians need to learn to cry out to God for deliverance. Deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us. That's the second part of, the, of this petition that the Lord Jesus puts on our lips. Now, if you were to stand downtown St. Albert at rush hour, it's not, it doesn't get that busy, but let's say at the busiest moment in downtown St. Albert, and if you would yell out, deliver me, what would people think? They would probably look for a FedEx truck, right, or a UPS. They, deliver me, we think of postage. It's a kind of an old-fashioned word in English. But the idea, the older idea, before we had, you know, next day delivery, the older idea in English and the idea that's behind the Greek in our text uh, is the idea of rescue. And so if you turn in your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 2, 2 Peter 2, and that's on page 1018, 2 Peter 2 verse 9. Now see if you can see the same word in the Greek, it's translated differently, but it's the same word in the Greek. Look at 2 Peter 2 verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And that word rescue is the same word that we have translated in the sixth petition as deliver. Rescue or deliver. 
So, what is basic to Christian prayer is a sense of our own weakness and inability. Lord, we are in ourselves so weak that we cannot even stand for a moment. And together with that sense of of weakness and inability in ourselves, there is in Christian prayer, together with that, a strong conviction that God is able to do what I cannot. And that's the attitude we have when in the midst of our trials and temptations, we cry out to God and we say, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. What we're saying is, God, we're weak, and our enemies are many, and our enemies are strong, and we really can't do this, God, but you, O oh God, you are stronger. And in you and in you alone, we can overcome. You are the one who has overcome the world. Greater is he who is in you than the one who is in the world, says the Scripture. Now, do we have a sense of that? Do we have a sense of our own inadequacy in the great cosmic battle which is raging all around us? Well, let's step back one step and ask this. Do we even understand that we are involved in this great cosmic battle? Or has the search for comfort and pleasure dulled our senses and choked our understanding that we are involved in a war between life and death, between heaven and hell. You see, life on this side of glory is one unending chain of trial and temptation following trial and temptation. We are under constant attack. And when things seem quiet, that's when we're really going to keep our eyes peeled because the, the enemy is planning and plotting the next nasty surprise attack. We never let our guard down because we have sworn enemies. What does the Catechism say? Summarizing Scripture's teaching, it says, we have sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh, and they do not cease to attack us. They don't cease. They don't take holidays. They don't take weekends off. They're always on on the job. Well, let's take a look at these enemies very quickly. The devil, that roaring lion, that ancient serpent who is like a roaring lion uh, prowling around looking for someone to devour. If you're going to step out of your house in the morning and somebody's told you that there's an escaped lion from the zoo and it's very, very hungry and it's in your neighborhood, you're not just going to go amble down and check the mail. You're going to be looking everywhere, behind every bush. You're going to be careful. And the Lord tells us, well, there is a lion out there. The devil's looking to devour you, so keep your eyes open. And he's got thousands of years of practice, thousands of years of experience in making people sin. The devil is so smart that he even managed to make Adam and Eve sin when they were still perfect. So he's good at what he does. Can I stand against him by myself? Can I stand against him and his hordes of demons in my own strength? Well, the the idea is ridiculous. So we've got the devil, and then we've got the world. And the world is not immediately just people who aren't believers, our neighbors. They're not our enemies, even if they don't believe in the Lord Jesus. The world is that whole, uh, that whole 
movement of intense rebellion and reject, uh, against and rejection of the sovereignty and the rule of God. So it's a whole worldview that was, that's in view here. There, those who are committed to the prince of darkness, as, as, as we are committed to the Lord of light, they love sin. They seek to hurt, destroy, trip up, lure away. Um, they, the forces of darkness, they join together to promote godlessness and perversion, immorality, and that poison is just dripping and flowing through what used to be considered a somewhat Christian society. It drips in through entertainment. It doesn't drip, it flows. And through the education system. And it's eating away, it's corroding at the bases of our Judeo-Christian foundations of our civilization. There is this new paganism which is promoted with its celebration of sexual perversion and immorality. It's celebration of selfishness and the culture of death. Free sex at the expense of killing any inconvenient child that may be the result of sexual activity. The murder of the unborn in their thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands. The death of the biblical concept of family and the death of all that is right and true and holy and good. That's, that's the world. And Satan and the world, they gang up on us. They surround God's holy people. They besiege the church. And this is an all-out war. It's like Hamas with Israel. Their goal is nothing short of the total destruction and annihilation of the church of God. The enemy's propaganda comes to us like a siren call, and they, the devil whispers in our ear. How can you withstand us? Can't you see that your silly religion is old-fashioned and intolerant and bigoted and out of date and so passe? Can't you see that your sexual mores, your sexual ethic is something ridiculous and not to be celebrated, something to be ashamed of? Can't you see that we have taken over the institutions of society and that resistance is futile? Can't you see that your quaint notions of morality, your pathetic attempt to live a Christian life, are really passe, restrictive, narrow-minded, bigoted, and hateful, and psychologically damaging? And the enemy preaches at us. The enemy preaches at us through movies, and Netflix, and magazines, and internet sites, and through unbelievers at school and at work, He's constantly feeding us his propaganda of a better world without religion, a better world without God, a better world without Christ, a better world without religious hang-ups. He says, he sings. Imagine there's no heaven. Imagine all people living in unity, fulfilling their desires. And they croon to us the words of John Lennon, I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one. And like a victim mesmerized by a venomous snake, we're often entranced by the lies of the enemy. The the enemy hammers at the gates. And inside our own flesh, our old nature, that's our third enemy, our old nature is like a fifth column. A bunch of traitors within us. And as the scripture says, deep 
calls to deep. The abyss recognizes the sounds of the abyss. And so the world, when it preaches to us, it finds an echo in our old nature, doesn't it? And before you know it, if we're not awake, and if we're not fighting with all of our might and the power of the Holy Spirit, before you know it, the elements of our old nature have run to the gates of our soul, have opened them up from the inside to let the enemies in. And we wake up as individuals, as families, and as churches, we wake up to find enemies crawling all over the place. And we rub our eyes and we yawn and we say, well, we do live in a sinful world. No one's perfect. We can't expect much success in resisting this. And we roll over and go back to sleep spiritually. We just kind of put up with stuff. We just get used to one more level, one more layer of sin and wickedness. And so, yeah, the fact that some vaccines, not all, but some are made or were made originally from cell lines, made uh, from aborted children, well, yeah, we're so busy, right? We're scrolling through Facebook. We don't have time to investigate and make sure that the vaccines our children are taking are morally acceptable and that they're not using murdered children in that vaccine line. We're just too busy. Or anti-aging skin creams made from body parts of aborted, murdered children. Well, yeah, we don't have time to investigate those things. We're too busy. We're working hard. We're playing hard. And we work so hard, we need to go off and have great holidays. And we just don't have time to figure out that the, the health of our children and our beauty and our nice skin might come at the cost of the murder of unborn babies. Well, there's the fornication and blasphemy in the movies. The first few times we see it, the first few times we hear it, like, ah, that hurts. We cover our eyes, we fast forward, we skip, we mute, we turn it off. But as time goes on, we're tired from a long day at school, at work. We need entertainment. And if God's name is blasphemed, and if we look on the nakedness of people to whom we are not married, well, what can you do? Like, it's all over. You, you mean I got to go without entertainment? Is that what you're saying? So if God, are you going to be like a, a legalist and a fanatic? I'm living in this world. I need some entertainment. So they're misusing and blaspheming God's name, and so they're engaging in sexual perversion. I'll just look the other way and get used to it. Well, the list goes on, right? The sexual perversion being promoted and taught in the school system, well, what can we really do about it? The, the greed, the lying, the unfaithfulness as society deals with business and money. We, we get caught up in it, and we end up cutting some corners ourselves. Well, you, what can you do? Everybody does it. You got to make a living. So, brothers and sisters, as God's people, we're not only surrounded by sin and evil, but it's also right in us. It's in our old natures. And our old natures are quite happy to be at peace with things that are not at peace with God. And as God tests our commitment to him, as God tests our commitment to holiness, this is the question. How are we doing on that test? How are we doing in fighting the evil which is in us and all around us? Are we standing up to it? Are we fighting it with all our strength? Or are we just accepting it 
giving into it, rolling over, and playing dead. Well, Jesus knows the right answer. And so Jesus teaches us to cry out to God, Oh God, deliver us from the evil one. Don't let us give in. Deliver us. Rescue us. Don't let it happen, Lord, that we just get used to sin and to evil. Help us to hate it. Help us to fight it. You see, this prayer, brother and sister, for help and temptation, it's not just this routine over and over thing with no end in sight. It's not just... It's not this little hamster wheel of you sin and you say, oh, Lord, I sinned, forgive me, and help me not to sin next time. Oh, now I sinned again. Forgive me, help me not to sin next time. It's not a hamster wheel. If the fifth petition, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors, if the fifth petition is the prayer for justification, that we're righteous before God through the merits of Christ, that he forgives us our sins by pure grace, then the sixth petition, which we're looking at today, is the prayer for sanctification. We're asking God, Lord, we want to have progress. We want to move forward with the battle lines, with the battlefront in this ongoing battle against sin. And so this this sixth petition guards us against falling into a pattern of sinning and then asking for forgiveness for the same sin over and over and over without any progress. We pray this petition with a firm conviction that every step forward, every fall, Every time God lifts us up again, we're moving forward. We're getting closer to the objective. It is not forever that this dynamic will be playing out. Look what we confess in the the Scripture. Sorry, not in the Scripture, in the the, um, summary of the Scripture, in the Catechism. How does the Catechism put it on page 564 and 563? Will you therefore uphold and strengthen us for the power of your Holy Spirit so that in this spiritual war we may not go down to defeat but always firmly resist our enemies until we finally obtain the complete victory? It's got an end point, you see. We're going somewhere. We pray for rescue from our enemies because we know that this rescue is guaranteed and the total destruction of our enemies is certain. Why do we know that? Well, look at the last lines of the, of the Lord's Prayer. Why, do, why are we so certain about this? Because yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. That's why. You know, if you read through the Psalms, every time the psalmist cries out to God for deliverance, or not every time, but many times, when he asks for rescue from his enemies, In this context, he exalts the Lord for his kingship, his sovereign power, and his glory. That's not a coincidence. Because it is, the psalmist knows that it is because God is king. It is because God is powerful. It is because God has all the glory that the psalmist can turn to him and know that he will be delivered. And so we look to God as our sovereign king. We belong to him. Do you think that a holy, righteous, just, true, faithful king would ever leave any one of his subjects in the clutches of the enemy? Do you think this is possible? Well, a human king might even make the mistake, but God will never make it. It is against God's character. It is against God's being. It is against who God is. To allow you, 
his royal child, the one he has loved from all eternity, the one for whom he came to suffer, to bleed, and to die. He will not let you fall into and remain in the grip of the temptations of the enemy. He will surely come to your aid. You know what Martin Luther used to say when he was faced with temptation? He was being tempted, and he would just yell out, because Martin Luther was a very colorful personality. He would just yell out, I am a baptized man. What was he saying? He was saying, I belong to a sovereign king. I carry the mark, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's who I belong to. I don't belong to you, devil. I don't belong to you, sin and temptation. I don't belong to you, world. I don't belong to you, old nature. But I belong, body and soul, within life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, and he has set me free from all the power of the devil. And because that is true, because that is true, we can pray, yours is the kingdom. We belong to the king of kings. We've got his mark stamped onto our bodies. Children, you know that, right? You've got the mark of the Lord Jesus right here on your head that you belong to Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords. Yours is the kingdom. Now God has the power, the strength to hold us up, to pull us through. Can anything in all creation have the power to pry open God's fingers and pluck you from his hand? No. Can anything in all creation put a stop to God? No. Can anything in all creation impede God from coming to your rescue? No. Can anything be strong enough to separate you from God's love toward you in Jesus Christ our Lord? No, nothing, no one, never. Yours is the power. And the power that Jesus has to save you is unstoppable. Yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, and then finally yours is the glory. God gets all the credit, you see. For, making it, for us making it safe across the finish line. No one can snatch us from his hand. Nothing can separate us from the love of God towards us in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's the one that's holding on to us. He's the one that's moving us forward. And when after a lifetime of, of stumbling and falls and limping and mistakes and transgressions and failures, when this poor sinner gets to the finish line, and when we poor sinners, we stand at the gates of heaven. Who will the angels and the heavenly creatures and the glorified saints be praising? Will they, will they look at you and say, wow, you are one amazing man, one amazing woman, one amazing child. You are such a great believer. Wow, Jesus should feel so lucky to have you come and, and be with him for eternity. Is that what's going to happen? Well, we know the answer, right? Who, to whom will they give all the glory for the fact that an unworthy, weak sinner finally enters into the heavenly mansions? They will break out into glory, glory, glory. You, O Lord Jesus, you, O Lamb of God, are worthy to receive all honor and power and glory and dominion forever and ever and ever. You see, the Christian life is not lived to the tune of the little engine that puffed away 
and said, I think I can. You remember that story? Or maybe it's a really old one from when I was a kid. The little engine had to go up the mountain, and it wasn't sure it could, but it just said, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. And when he got up to the top, he said, I, I knew I could, I knew I could, I knew I could. And he goes down the other side. That's not the soundtrack of the Christian life. I think I can. Well, the Christian life is set to this theme. I know in whom I have believed. I know he can. I know he can. I know he will. He can do what I cannot do. He can bring me through to the finish. He can do it. He will do it. You know why? Because he is my heavenly glorified, sovereign, all-powerful Father in Jesus Christ, my Lord. His is the kingdom. His is the power. His is the glory forever. Amen.